somehow or somewhere decided to become a teacher, my motivation was to be an inspiration and a help to a lot of the kids who feel now the same way as I feel, as I felt about school, which was I was really intimidated by it. Um, at the time, I probably had what they now know as ADD or ADHD. My name is Kira, and welcome to my first full episode of my new podcast. The other day, I spoke to Thaddeus Richards, a public school teacher in the Newport Mesa Unified School District. Thaddeus has been teaching the primary grades for the past 21 years at Newport Heights Elementary in Orange County. Throughout this episode, Thaddeus shares how he has worked to make a lasting impact on his students, common core standards, and how he has managed attending to a diverse range of students in his classroom. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Thaddeus Richards. Okay. (laughs) Perfect. Okay, so I just have a few questions to ask. It probably won't take long. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the thing about teaching that's neat is a lot of people find themselves in a career with lots of different uh, masks that they wear or name tags, but in teaching, you're a teacher for the entire time, you know, unless yeah. you get into administration or counseling or something, but... Uh, you know, some people in other careers, you know, you, you you get promoted and you do other things. A teacher, your promotion every year is just becoming a better teacher. There's no, no pay raises or yeah. a better office with a view. It's just your, you know, your ego and knowing that each year you learn more and become better and you get mm-hmm. more motivated. And what grade do you teach Currently, I am a first grade teacher, but I taught third grade for 10 years. Now, after teaching younger grades for Mm -hmm. 20 years, Mm -hmm. do you feel like there's a certain importance of those grades that, like, make a lasting impact? I do, and that's what I was explaining to you earlier. I, uh, I believe that my approach and my personality that I share with my students um, gives the students who come into school with a healthy school mindset um, an opportunity to grow that mindset of being, you know, comfortable at school and ready to learn. But I also believe that I really, and I felt that in third grade and I felt it in second grade, but I truly sensed it and feel it more in first grade that I have, uh, you know, 35 weeks to uh, to help students who might not be ready for school for many reasons, maturity, academics, social awareness. Mm-hmm. And I really help those students get to be comfortable with who they are on the planet as a student and recognize that each student has their own 
uh, gifts and abilities and to not recognize themselves as behind or different, but to just recognize themselves with their own capabilities. And I've heard from many students in my career that I've done just that, that I've really mm-hmm. given them the sense of importance and uh, ability and uh, belief in themselves. So I think my primary teachers have a real important job to, you know, not be scary, not be uh, curt, but to be really supportive and helpful and help students and parents alike recognize, like, you know, your child is doing the best that he or she can, and we need to, you know, build from there, not try and get the student to a place that they might not be able to get to just yet. Yeah. Yeah, and well, just hearing you saying that, obviously, that's great. And with my, well, I was researching uh, curriculum in public mm-hmm. education, it seems very revolved around, I guess, an average. Yeah. And do you feel that in the classroom? And is that a hard barrier to like overcome in terms of standardized testing, let's say, and um, following a certain path with the curriculum? No, I mean, the path with curriculum is necess- it's a necessary evil because you need to follow something that's going to guide you from point A to point B. So you need curriculum. Um, The common core standards were just an updated version of California's academic standards that we had in the 90s and the early 2000s. So it was just a a nationalized uh, uh, performance-based and it's not a curriculum, it's standards. So how to, mm-hmm. basically, it, they came up with a bunch of uh, concepts that these people, whoever made them up, felt that, you know, a, a person by the end of first grade should be able to do these things, X, Y, and Z, in each of the curricular areas, math, social studies, science, language arts, reading. Um, so we have the curriculum to guide us on that path but then we Mm -hmm. also have the latitude as teachers to you know do the do it the best way we can you know we necessarily don't have to turn you know from page six to page seven if that's not going to help everybody in my class master a standard I'm definitely going to use a different book or use a different program or make something up on my own or review something more times than necessary or you know so we we recognize what certain students might need to help them understand that standard um what i try and help parents understand is you you might not get a first grader that's going to master these standards they're they're pretty intense and Mm -hmm. I mean as a professional I believe that the standards are probably a year uh, a year to year and a half off in a child's maturity and developmental ability Mm -hmm. Um, so they might come too soon too fast for a lot of kids Um, but if we get hung up on trying to make the kids who can't try and master them we have a real good chance of you know, giving that student a negative taste in their mouth about learning. And so 
I really try to recognize if the child's not able to master that standard, I'm going to just give that child what they need to just be introduced to that standard, have some sense of that standard, and making progress towards mastery. So my goal is not uh, is more progress towards mastery, not mastery-based. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in first grade, they don't take standardized tests, so... I don't have I have the luxury of approaching it like that when you get to third grade and they do have to take the state standardized test there's quite a bit more pressure yeah um, but even when I taught third grade uh, you know I was very comfortable with not teaching to the test and not being upset if kids didn't do well I don't believe these tests in primary grades are good uh, steering wheel for Mm -hmm. students because they're not going to uh they they put the pressure on the districts and the teachers to do well to get certain fundings or to get certain measurements on how well we're doing um and of course we want every child to achieve uh but the test itself is a high pressure way to uh to to get the data yeah And with the, so let's say a group of students or the school in general doesn't do too well one year, does that affect funding in a school or? Not anymore. No. Oh. They don't. They, it, it could affect if a school repeatedly does, if a school does poorly consistently, it could affect the funding and they could go into, I'm not going to remember the name of it right now but some type of an academic, uh, I forget what it's called, and then somebody that they do send uh, a, they they do send in a team to help that school turn their marks around. Um, Like in our district, they recognize the schools that for many demographic reasons aren't going to do well. And so those schools have different programs in place to help those students and those uh, tasks be a little bit more manageable. Yeah. And when did that start? Or has it always been that way? Um, I mean, I can't answer for every district. I can only answer for Newport Mesa. And Mm -hmm. I know in our district, everybody is quite aware about the differences between the school zones and our district definitely doesn't ignore the fact that um, there's going to be different academic needs in the different zip codes in Newport Beach. Um, Somebody up in Newport Coast is probably not going to have language barriers they're probably going to have students who are bilingual and trilingual (laughs) Mm -hmm. as opposed to students being monolingual in the wrong language yeah and yeah in your classroom have you had students who do have language barriers or not so much i have yeah uh the the demographic of our school is very mixed and we do have um, quite a few students who come to us with uh, English being their second language and a, you know a different language being their primary language at home. Um, and of course, it's always a challenge, but we have at our school 
a lot of programs in place to attend to the needs of those students. Yeah. We have some reading intervention programs. We have some phonics intervention programs. And then, of course, the publishing company that we use for our language arts program always has a supplemental uh, program for ELA students. Mm-hmm. And then we implement that the best we can. And then, you know, uh, we're also lucky that in our demographic, these kids, for the most part, are coming from families that are motivated and motivating their children to do well in school. But I imagine in some other districts where there's generational uh, disparities that kids aren't coming from households that are motivated by school. Yeah. But kids in Newport Beach, Costa Mesa, for the most part, I'm sure all families are trying to do what's right for their kids. Not all, but most. Most. Yeah. And do you think in the classroom there's anything that, not prohibits, but um, creates barriers for children who do come from a different background? Or, well, I know you said there's uh, programs in place, but within... Or yeah, do you just feel at any point that there is our boundaries um, for those students? Or yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, there's going to be access to, uh, you know, every for families that are speaking a different language at home. You know, all of the school communications are coming out in English, and then we try to identify the families that need some secondary translations or the communique to come out in Spanish or I don't think we have any other languages besides Spanish at our school. Um, But definitely there's going to be, you know, just the social barriers. Those kids are going to be coming to school and, you know, in a first grade setting, the other kids have probably had kindergarten together or neighborhood play time together or sports together and these kids are coming in without those social connections. Um, and then just, you know, being in a classroom and hearing English but not knowing it is intimidating. But that's just a, a process that anybody at a school that teaches a different language is have to gonna overcome. It'd be like yeah. you, know, you or I going to school in Spain or Italy. We'd be sitting at a desk. Mm-hmm. All day. We have to make the best of it. If you want it to work, you come home and do your homework in Italian and you ask your parents to speak Italian and you just try and do it. It's when both sides of the table aren't on the same page. You know, you do all the work at school to get the students speaking English and then at home they're not doing the practice that they do. Yeah. Uh, but at home, like for me, I'm a proponent. Anytime I have a Spanish-speaking family, I always tell them to continue to speak Spanish at home because the last thing you want to happen, especially in our multicultural society, is for kids to lose their primary language. Yeah. Because when this is all said and done, and they, let's say they only graduate high school, they'll be farther ahead than students who graduate college because just at the very least, they'll be bilingual. Mm-hmm. And they need to be fluent in both languages, not just bilingual. 
So mm-hmm. you always want to remind the parents of that. Like, you know, I'm okay if you're doing stuff at home in Spanish, but, you know, remember, too, that your student has the opportunity to be one-upped on a lot of people because if they take their bilingual gift to the next level, that's huge on a resume. Yeah, for sure. And do you feel like they're, what do you think the future is for the education system and what do you think could be improved mm-hmm. upon? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, geez, that's a, that's a big question because, I mean, I kind of approach the education system optimistically because for the most part I hope and believe that most teachers are in it to help kids uh, become you know educated and good humans um, you have to break down that the, the future of it because it leaves the classroom and then it's in the hands of the district and then it's in the hands of the state and then eventually it's in the hands of the nation so depending on who's in power at the times of your teaching, you know, school can be under attack of being non-funded or schools can be, you know, under some, uh, you know, government people throwing lots of money. When I first started teaching, the trend was reduce class sizes and I remember my first five years of teaching I never had over 20 kids oh wow manageable but then for quite some years I had 30 kids and the upper grades had you know in the thir- in the 30s hmm. so if, if the powers that be want the future of education to be successful the most simple and expensive step that they could do is just reduce class sizes agree with teachers unions that it's not about raises it's not about better working conditions but I mean imagine I mean you are fortunate to go to the school you're at but imagine a school with just we'll just for this conversation say an okay demographic you know kids that are somewhat well behaved some kids that aren't well behaved some kids that are can read some that can't but then imagine in fourth grade that demographic with 36 kids and one teacher it's quite impossible Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and then imagine when you get sixth grade and kids are impressed with social media technology cell phones puberty imagine 36 of those kids and one teacher yeah so you know depending on what the powers that be if they want schools to succeed they need to address that Mm-hmm. And that would be my primary suggestion if, if, if the new head of schools for President Biden asked me that a question, I would just tell them that. Yeah. <laughs> so that has nothing to do with standards or nothing to do with teachers. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you, even though people have what have their own agenda on what they believe or don't want to believe a majority of teachers are hard working people with their hearts in the right place yeah 
And yes, you're going to get the jaded teacher that reads the paper or somebody that's just in it for the summer vacation. But that's with every job in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so smaller class sizes. Uh, part of me believes that there's a systematic dismantling of public education in our nation because with all the box stores and fast foods and Walmarts and Amazons and delivery, all those places are going to need a mass of uneducated people willing to work for $15 an hour. Mm. So the more people you don't graduate from the system, the more you're going to be able to employ a huge amount of people at a base rate. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to be able to ask for more or receive more. Mm-hmm. So if you don't attend to your most needy schools and needy populations, you automatically solve that problem. Yeah. That's interesting. I've never... And you solve that problem by continually making public schools fail, uh, supporting and opening charter schools, and then you'll always get the elite people who graduate from private schools. Yeah. So the structure of public education will always be an integral part of uh, employing all the places that the people who have succeeded need working. Yeah. Housekeepers, gardeners, mechanics. Look around. There's more people out working menial, underpaid jobs than there are people making millions of dollars. Yeah. And that's an effect of bad public education. Mm-hmm. So I hope I'm not on that end. <laughs> 